This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly from Bloomberg Radio. Hi, I'm Jason Kelly. And I'm Carol Masser. Welcome to the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week. Jason, it's week 27, still working mostly from home. Our show is perfect for a fall weekend. We've got a little football, a little beer, a little humor, a little political satire. And I got to say, we got a great lineup. Well, and it was a great week here at Bloomberg, a big week, the Bloomberg Green Festival. We're going to hear part of your interview with Inga Group President and CEO Jesper Broden, the business case for climate action. Yeah, we've got a trifecta of mega CEOs. You mentioned IKEA. We've also got the CEO of Chipotle. And then we've got the co-founder and owner of the Atlanta Falcons all talked with us on our daily radio show about core values. Plus, the results of our Business Week Best B-School survey, not a ranking this year. But first, the cover story all about Facebook. Yeah, and we got to tell you, there was some news this week on Facebook. The FTC said to be preparing a possible antitrust lawsuit against Facebook. They've been investigating the company for more than a year. It's really whether the social media giant has harmed competition. They could file a case by the end of the year. But as you said, the cover story, it's got a political take when it comes to Facebook. Bloomberg News technology reporter Sarah Fryer joined us along with the editor of the magazine, Joel Weber. I think it's just a compilation of all the things that my colleague Kurt Wagner and I have been hearing over the past few months and years about how Facebook has increasingly been willing to look the other way when members of, of Trump's world break the rules on Facebook. And that's not any mistake. The company has, um, you know, the Trump administration has leveraged over Facebook. They're facing a potential regulation uh, and even worse potential for Trump to blow up and create another bad news cycle. But they are catering to that power and employees are quite concerned about what that means as we head into the November election. So, you know, I think, um, Sarah, um, the, uh, there's a lot of stuff in here and it makes me just think about everything that we've kind of observed um, about politics and Facebook uh, going back to basically 2016, where obviously all the concerns were ended up being about sort of Russian interference and its uh, and its role on 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 manipulating the platform effectively. Um, and that is a concern, um, again, but it's actually, it seems like the thrust of this might be in sort of the Facebook's response to that wasn't necessarily uh, to, to take on that stuff. Um, and, and they've done, a, I think, a pretty amazing job of, uh, of at least recognizing the ability to spot some of that stuff. But there seems to have been sort of a rightward drift at Facebook. And, and that has been, um, you know, that's obviously the center of the story. Can you talk more about where those concerns are rooted in. Right. So after the Russian election interference, remember Russia was was inserting itself into U.S. polarizing topics like immigration, like race, like like feminism. They were building groups uh, on on Facebook using people pretending to be Americans who weren't. And what Facebook concluded from that is that it wasn't the things that the fake people were saying, the problem was just that they were fake people. So Facebook really does not care if people are trying to manipulate others on Facebook and spreading um, sometimes very incendiary fake news. They don't want to take it down. They only want to get 
get their enforcement into gear if there are fake people behind it, if they're breaking other rules. And what that's done is it's created this environment where Trump can really test the limits of these policies. He's been spreading a lot of misinformation about how to vote, uh, telling people things um, about mail-in voting, saying that that would lead to fraud. Of course, that's not true. Um, he has been using Facebook essentially to uh, sow doubt in the potential results of the election. And Facebook has said, well, I know we said that we cared about voting misinformation, but we don't think that Trump is breaking our rules. And we don't want to take down anything from a politician. So simply, you know, I want to ask, Sarah, is Mark Zuckerberg courting the president? And and what's great about your story is you did some really inside reporting, talking to employees who have worked at the company and seen, you know, some of the policies that they have done and this, and kind of what they've been focusing on. But is Zuckerberg courting the president? Well, he's not a Trump Republican. What he is is interested in power and dominance for Facebook. And that requires the support of people in power. And that's not just in the U.S. We've seen this in many countries throughout the world. Facebook always helps out the government in charge, um, caters to their concerns, and in some cases, you know, gives them FaceTime with Zuckerberg, lets them break rules that they wouldn't let them break if they weren't powerful. And what employees are concerned about is that this is actually having this unbalanced effect on what basic users see and how they are informed about the election. One example that um, that we learned for this story is that there were a, a lot of changes to the newsfeed after the 2016 presidential election to try to reduce the amount of incendiary and untrustworthy news um, because that was one of the big problems. Mm. Well, Facebook tested the potential outcome of an algorithm change, and the policy team reviewed that and thought, well, this is this is hurting the traffic for conservative outlets too much. And that was Bloomberg News technology reporter Sarah Fryer. All things Facebook is her beat, and editor Joel Weber. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Coming up, we head to the Bloomberg Green Festival. We go from social media to social consciousness. We get the business case for climate change from the head of IKEA. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly from Bloomberg Radio. Welcome back to Bloomberg Business Week. Well, a big week here at Bloomberg, the Bloomberg Green Festival across the entire week. Some amazing conversations, including yours with a Swedish company we all know. Yeah, we certainly do. We're talking about Jesper Broden. He's the president and CEO of the Inca Group, home to some 374 IKEA stores in 30 countries. I talked with him about the business case for climate change, which he definitely made. But we began with what life has been like amid COVID-19. This year, for us, like for everybody uh, on this planet, we have been through um, a very special journey this year. And I must admit, as I shared with you, to to be traveling about again, I felt a bit like the old movie Castaway when uh, coming back to to the office, seeing people, uh, um, and enjoying that also. I must say, at the same time, obviously, um, we just like everybody else have figured out new ways of leading. Uh, we have figured out that we we um, uh, didn't have a map for this situation, but we had a very strong compass. I think with the the way we like to lead and our values that helped us actually. I think take many good decisions, but it's been a ride. 
It's been a ride, no doubt about it. It's interesting that you say that, and we're going to get into kind of your sustainability strategy that is so much the IKEA and corporate culture here. But I do wonder, having so many of those measures in place, are there any specific anecdotes that you can tell us that helped you guys get through this crisis because of those green initiatives, those sustainable initiatives? Well, you, you can say, I think the it's all intertangled, right? People, planet, uh, and business. And you can't take out any of these uh, from the equation. Uh, so what happened, obviously, to us um, was that we had uh, periods of dramatic closures uh, in our stores. And we had to find ways to, um, to both uh, protect ourselves, our people, our customers. Uh, and then, on the other hand, we had to make sure that we could save the jobs for the future. And the way what actually happened in the end of the day was that we were speeding up everything around uh, multi-channel and online. And uh, we went from uh, a good year to a record loss forecast to actually coming back on half of our uh, uh, estimated profit in the end of the day. And that was thanks to, I think, the entrepreneurship of getting things right uh, quickly. Do you think we're through it? Do you, are you guys getting ready for another wave? Well, you know, I, I think uh, at a certain moment we were we were quite early on uh, forecasting different scenarios, um, and the period that we have just entered we called <clears throat> the new normal, and I think it's a bit of a deceptive term in a way because uh, the way we see it is that for at least a year to come we need to be very agile, very prepared for outbreaks. I think the term uh, second wave uh, could be misunderstood, so we like to uh, plan for outbreaks and how to deal with that in, in the best possible way, uh, both for jobs, for business uh, um, and for everything we do in society and contribute to. And obviously, it's clear for all of us that, you know, one year later again, it's still going to be learnings. Uh, there will be things that we will be, um, uh, you know, doing differently. And there will be a lot of, I think, amazing things that we carry with us from this period as well, hopefully, including the way we realize the importance of investment in sustainability and the opportunity of doing that right. Well, let's get to that because despite this being a crazy year, a tumultuous year, you guys are on track to achieve and exceed a goal to produce as much energy from renewable sources as you consume by 2020. You have made massive investments, about two and a half billion euro in wind and solar power. You've set a 2030 goal to be climate positive, meaning you're going to reduce more gas emissions than you emit. You are in you know, when it comes to electric, 100% electric, 100% of the time ahead of targets when it comes to deliveries in Shanghai by EVs. Um, you're doing that in Amsterdam, LA, New York, Paris. And here's something, a goal for everyone who's listening. By 2030, mm -hmm. you guys have set your ambition is to inspire and enable 1 billion people to live a better everyday life within the limits of the planet. It's really heady stuff and it's impactful stuff. Mm -hmm. How tough has this been to do? And what has been the business case for climate change for mm. you all? If you look at uh, IKEA's history, you can say we started out with a founder that was a very thrifty uh, person, very smart right. around resources. And I think that's part of our story. So part of this, you know, that sustainability and <clears throat> being, being smart about people and planet uh, is part of our legacy. Uh, my own story uh, started back in 95 with the company when I uh, joined in Asia Pacific at a time when we invested in, uh, I think, what is still today an amazing code of conduct when it comes to production. Those days we had uh, some discussions about can we afford it, will it drive costs to do the right thing with working hours, salaries, etc. And in the end of the day, it turned out to be 
brilliant for business. We have the most efficient partners, happy uh, co-workers along, etc. So I think we uh, already then we, we saw some uh, uh, myths uh, that were we needed to bust. And the same goes for, for the climate um, goals that we have uh, committed to, where we, we do not have all the answers yet. So we still have some gaps to be filled the coming years. But we are convinced that this is uh, uh, good business for three reasons. Or you can say for two reasons. One is that our co-workers and our customers expect us to take the lead. So it would be, I would say, dangerous to not take that lead uh, from, um, mm -hmm. um, from your revenue side. But secondly, uh, the business model we are building is the new low cost. Uh, so sustainability shows in case by case to be the, the way we will uh, provide uh, low price furniture in the future. You say, you know what, a couple of things. You said it was brilliant for the company. So I'm, I'm wondering if you can put some numbers on that in terms of the business case for doing all of this. But I also wonder, you said myths to bust, because I can only imagine some of the mm. internal, you know, discussions, Jesper, that you folks had that said, no, we can't do that. I know it's good for the environment, but, you know, it's going to cost too much or we can't recreate our supply mm. chain. So give me a little bit of that, that feel. No, but absolutely. I, I think the best number I can give you is that last year we were very happy and proud uh, that we were able to grow with some 6% plus, uh, which mm -hmm. is a good, uh, a decent IKEA year. And at the same time, we reduced our absolute uh, carbon footprint across the whole uh, scope one, two and three uh, with uh, more than 4%. So it was possible to show uh, healthy growth and at the same time uh, decarbonize, if you like. Uh, obviously, we are very humble and respectful to the future to continue that journey, which is the plan. Uh, but that was, the, I think, the first year of proof uh, for us. But then you can say to the myths, I, I think there are three myths uh, that I see over and over again. One is that purpose and profit don't go hand in hand, which I think <laughs> and we think is the opposite. <laughs> um, th there is a very strong myth that sustainability should come at a premium, which I, I think is very dangerous because then this is a mass movement that needs to involve everybody on this planet. So therefore, it should be rather seen as the new low cost. And, and finally, there are a lot of myths around that consumption is all bad. And there is bad consumption, but uh, there is also sustainable consumption. And that's president and CEO of the Inca Group, Jesper Broden. Great conversation, Carol. Thank you. Well, you're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Still to come, another company where sustainability is at the core of its business. We check in with the CEO of Chipotle. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly from Bloomberg Radio. In this week's magazine, another edition of Business Week Talks, we caught up with the CEO of Chipotle Mexican Grill. We're talking about Brian Nickel. And we talked with him about the tightness in the labor market that he's seeing and how restaurants are faring during the pandemic. Well, we're not seeing um, an issue with applicant flow. You know, uh, we're continuing to see great access to great talent. Um, and, you know, I think one of the things why people are really drawn to Chipotle is we have a tremendous growth story. Uh, so it's always fun to be a part of a company that when you think about I'm joining today and this company could, you know, triple in revenue over the next decade, you know, double store count, you know, go from 2,600, 2,700 restaurants to five, 6,000 restaurants. Um, you know, they're really excited about all the growth, right? Our, our thing about our digital business, we, we went from, you know, a couple hundred million dollars to this year, we'll be about probably $2.4 billion worth of digital business. Wow. And people love to be a part of companies that have growth. And then what really attracts them here is they feel like it's very much aligned with their personal values. 
So they love the growth, they love the values, and uh, they're excited to be a part of what our future is. And, uh, you know, I keep telling our team, let's just make sure we're hiring the best possible people, but let's also make sure we're hiring the best possible people that really believe in our purpose and our values. And that's where I think we really strike gold. Brian, why do you think Chipotle has been so successful boosting sales in its digital uh, delivery and delivery business? You guys have just done really well. As you talked about some of the numbers and some of the growth, it's pretty impressive. Why do you think it's worked so well? You know, I, I think we have been very focused on keeping the digital execution really simple and mirroring the same experience you get when you come into our restaurants. So, you know, we've tried very hard uh, to give you a digital experience that, frankly, is almost identical to as if you're in a restaurant moving down the line, picking out, you know, how you want to make your bowl or burrito. And, you know, we've stayed very committed to keeping it simple. You know, over and over again, what I hear people say is, wow, I love your app. It's so easy to use. And then it's so easy to actually get the food when it's time to pick it up. So, um, you know, just the aspect of keeping it very simple, really convenient, and then, you know, this has always been at the core of Chipotle. We're really fast and we're tremendous value. So we've just given people another access mode to get great culinary, great ingredients, done exactly how they want it. And, uh, you know, at a tremendous value. So it's, it's working out really well because if you want to order ahead, grab it and go. If you need it delivered, we can deliver it. If you want to run in, move down the line and have that eye to eye, you know, contact so you get the burrito exactly the way you want it. Um, we have all these avenues available for you. And, but at the core of it is great ingredients, great culinary, and then you end up with just delicious burritos and bowls. So, you know, at the end of the day, we are still a restaurant company that right. is committed to changing food culture. Hey, Brian, you know, back in March, you did say to me that you thought digital could be about 30 to 40% of your business and be a multi-billion dollar business over the next three to five years. That still feel about real and, and likely, or even more perhaps? Well, well, yeah, you know, and, you know, unfortunately, Carol, that was before uh, it became 80% of our business um, for a time yeah, there. That's but, true. you know, you probably saw in our most recent earnings report, we're in that 40 to 50% range. And, uh, you know, obviously that'll continue to fluctuate as the dining rooms reopen. But I definitely think our digital business is going to stay around as our dining room business comes back. So it'll stay among that 40 to 50% level, you think? I think there's a real possibility that's where it could stick. Yeah. So listen, one thing I got to ask you, Brian, is that I know um, all the CEOs we talk to, they don't have a ton of visibility at this point. So um, I do wonder what metrics do you look at? Is it consumer data points? Is it, you know, the app, the digital? What are you looking at to get an idea of how healthy the consumer is um, and maybe what the rest of 2020 looks like at this point? Yeah, you're exactly right, Carol. There is a lot of uncertainty. I'm sure uh, if you talk to a lot of my peers, they, we could rattle off the list of all the uncertainties in front of us. Uh, what we've decided to really stay focused on is, okay, what can what are the things we can control? And the things we can control is making sure that we have a really safe environment for our employees to work in, a safe environment that our customers believe in and trust. Um, we know if we do those two things, uh, we continue to get people's uh, trust and then ultimately their business around uh, their meal occasions. And so we continue to really monitor how we as a brand are doing on the things that we can control. You know, are we doing a good job of communicating the safety? Are we doing a good job of communicating 
why you can feel great about these ingredients, why you can feel great about getting that burrito or bowl from Chipotle. Um, and then obviously we're paying attention to a lot of the macros to understand the health of uh, the consumer. Right. Um, and, you know, obviously, depending on where you are in the country, we're seeing a lot of different things. But, uh, you know, for the most part, customers and consumers are still wanting to order food out. And that's Chipotle CEO Brian Nickel. You can hear more of that conversation on our podcast feed. It's our latest Business Week talks. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Up next, he co-created an S&P 500 company that is a well-known brand. He owns an NFL team, and he has some thoughts on running a good company. Talking about Arthur Blank. Spoiler alert, this is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly from Bloomberg Radio. So one of our favorite interviews, no doubt about it, of the week was Arthur Blank. Man, Jason, he wears so many different hats. Of course, co-founder of Home Depot, owner of the Atlanta Falcons, of MLS's Atlanta United, PGA Tour Superstores, Paradise Valley Ranches. Man, this is a very, very busy guy. He is indeed, and really he has emerged, and I have watched this pretty up close over the Mm -hmm. last 20, 25 years, Carol. Obviously, going from being a very successful businessman, one of the best-known companies in the country, one that we look at as really an economic indicator in many ways, to being a true community leader. Because being a sports team owner, it's not a sidelight anymore. It is more than a full-time job. And listen, and I'm biased here, Atlanta (laughs) is an incredibly important city. So much has gone on of late. It is the cradle of the civil rights movement. He was good friends with the late John Lewis and his new book, Good company, I think it's not a coincidence that it echoes John Lewis's good trouble. But we, of course, had to start. Of course. We have to start talking about football because football's back. The NFL, it got kicked off this past weekend. We have made all of our decisions um, based on what scientists are telling us, what medical is telling us, what the CDC is telling us, et cetera. And we've stayed out of the, uh, you know, the, the, the opinion business. Right. Um, you know, there's nobody in the NFL, certainly at the league office or in any clubs, that know better than you know all of these these experts that are on our staffs and consultants and advisory uh, positions that we work with. So they've given us great counsel, and we followed it. Um, and we've asked all of our players to follow it, and they've done a great job in doing that. What are you most worried about uh, as the next couple weeks unfold here, Arthur? Well, I think the danger, if you just follow the, the, the course of the, the question you guys have, is that, you know, now we're beginning to travel. Yeah. And I think that, you know, the risk goes up when we, you know, we travel, although, you know, we, all the teams use, uh, you know, chartered planes, private planes, things of that nature. So, and again, they've been very careful with all the protocols and who's in the team hotels, who's not in the team hotels, et cetera. But once you start to travel, you know, we know that personally, but we also know it as organizations, in this case professional football teams, that that'll be the case as well. So, you know, I think we'll be in good uh, in good stead. There's always a risk. Uh, and given the highly contagious nature of this disease, I mean, you know, if you have a breakout, you have a breakout. We've mm-hmm. seen some of that in baseball and, and in some other sports as well. So we, uh, we haven't seen that yet in the NFL, and hopefully we start our season, we'll be able to complete our season, and play a Super Bowl in uh, in Tampa Bay in February. God, that would be so wonderful. And you know what's um, really refreshing is it's, it's you know, you when you don't like somebody, you tell us. <laughs> and when there's <laughs> tough situations, you tell us. And it's also yeah. very relevant to today in terms of inequalities, right. injustices, racism. Right. Um, it's all here. 
you deal with it. Yeah. Well, I think, Cal, I think that's very true. I think that, you know, it's interesting is that um, we started the book about four years ago. So that was before the pandemic, before the uh, crunch from an economic standpoint, before the social unrest and uh, everything else that our country is, all the polarization that we're that we're seeing today and feeling today in our country. So, but it's very appropriate for for these for these times because essentially what the what the book is really suggesting is that these six core set of values that we built HD with Home Depot with and still 40, 42 years later is still driving the company's incredible success that we've been able to translate to a football team, a soccer team, guest ranches, PGA business, etc., and uh, and get the same kind of financial performance, but also yet on an equally weighted uh, dumbbell, if you will, or, or you know, weight, if you will, uh, associate-driven purpose businesses. So our associates, our communities, our people we're serving, guests, fans, customers, whatever the case may be, you know, they feel like um, there's um, that we're making the right decision for the right reasons based on a based on a pillar set of values. Now, the applications may change from time to time because the environment changes and the context changes, but those those core values are really the same. And uh, they make decision-making a lot simpler, and they bring us to the right place. And uh, as my mother would, would tell me for many, many years, do the right things for the right reasons and live with the consequences, mm-hmm. the book really talks about a lot of that. And frankly, our younger populations today are really demanding that. Um, they want a life of not only purpose for themselves, but, you know, how do I serve humanity? Um, they're seeing that across the board. An example of that is uh, the program which um, started at Yale University uh, by Dr. Lori Santos. On kids were demanding, like, you know, I'm not happy. I have all these things mm-hmm. in life that I don't feel comfortable. I don't feel as fulfilled as I should feel. Started out with 30 students, and now a quarter of the student body at Yale University, 205 years old, takes that class on a voluntary basis. Right. We've had similar similar applications across the country, but our young people today are are demanding you know more out of you know what just the just the bottom line. They want to see a bottom line of life as well. And I think these values that we describe in stories and thoughts and sharings and practical applications are ways that young people can feel that this is purpose as well. I'm serving not just myself and my family, but serving humanity and serving my neighbors, if you will. So, well, um, and and Arthur, it's interesting to hear you put it in that framework, especially talking to you from Atlanta, which is you know the cradle of the civil rights movement, right. where young people have driven the conversation. They're driving it now, and there was a young man who ultimately became a friend of yours, who was evoked either intentionally or unintentionally, I think. And you can talk about it. When I hear good company, I think of good trouble, and I think of John Lewis. Right. Uh, and right. I know he was a friend right. of yours, and yes. and a, and and sort of a, a partner in many ways. What have you learned in Atlanta, and what have you learned of late about where we are right now in those conversations around equality? You know, I I appreciate the question, and if Congressman Lewis was with us, he would appreciate the question. So when we were uh, in the proceeds of this book, all go to the National Civil and Human Rights Museum, which is based in Atlanta, and that Mm -hmm. was part when we hosted the Super Bowl in 2017, we uh, we actually we used that facility and all of the owners, the management from the NFL players went through that facility. But on my left and on my right, Congressman uh, Lewis was on my right and Ambassador Young was on my left. About a month before John Lewis passed, um, we had a long conversation with our associates and with myself. 
And he said to me, you know, we've made, you know, since the 50s and 60s, we have made a lot of progress. Is it where it needs to be? The answer is no. We need to have a greater sense of urgency, but we need to acknowledge at least the progress that we've made. We need to um, have a greater sense of urgency dealing with these issues today. But I have great hope that the American population and the American civilization will respond and respond in a positive way. Separately, uh, about a week later, I spoke to Andy Young, said exactly the same thing to me, exactly the same words. These are both disciples of Dr. King, uh, who, you know, who walked with him and spent time with him, et cetera. So, you know, where I am, I, I, I feel like these, um, these calls to our sensibilities and, and to balance in our lives and to, and to these things that we're protesting about, I think are very real. And I, and I, um, I support them. I salute them. I don't support and salute any any sort of any sort of violence, any sort of chaos uh, that that we see. And you know, the last book that Dr. King wrote, which was never published, is published when he was alive. Is published the year after he passed away by Coretta, his wife, was uh, dealing with community or chaos, and that's where our country is today. All these years later, community yeah. or chaos, and I think the answer, you know, for us, for me, is really community. And finding a way to, um, you know, to bring things together in a more purposeful way, in a more collaborative way, crossing aisles or whatever it may be. And the book, in a sense, it uh, deals with that, it deals with values that don't have to do with, you know, red and, and blue. It has to do with, you know, doing the right things for the right reasons by every human being that we're connected to, who we're serving, whether it be our case, guest fans or customers with our associates, uh, and being sensitive to the communities that we live in. Well, I have to... Oh, go ahead. No, please, Arthur. Please, go ahead. I'll give you one quick example. Post the book. Um, We operate these uh, guest ranches in Montana, uh, two of them. One is open to the public. The other one is open up to use it for nonprofit work and, um, you know, a variety of conferences, et cetera. And uh, we closed them both this summer. One has been operating for over 100 years, Hmm. first time it's ever been closed. And we did it. I mean, we knew that 70% of our associates come from out of state. We knew that almost 100% of our guests come from out of state. Uh, we knew that these communities that are n- nearby, these so-called, so-called gateway communities that go into Yellowstone Park, um, could be affected. And so, you know, it wasn't, it was a sad decision, but it was an easy decision based on these values we talk about in the book. And of course, that's Arthur Blank, co-founder of Home Depot, owner of the Atlanta Falcons. Man, this guy is so interesting. And I got to say, his book, Jason, Good Company, what I love about it, it is so relevant. He deals with all of those topics in terms of inequalities and racism that we're dealing with today. Well, and we both got a chance to read the book. And Mm -hmm. let's be honest, you and I get a lot of books sent to us. (laughs) We have to do a lot of these interviews. His is quite captivating, in part because it's so candid. I also had a chance to catch up with him for our Business of Sports podcast a couple weeks ago when the book launched. And I will tell you, he is incredibly thoughtful. He is very real in a way that you might not expect for someone who has been this successful. He owns his mistakes, and he also knows that what he's doing in business, especially as a sports owner, it is complicated. He is a steward. He is someone who has to care about the community, and he has to care about his city in a very, very holistic way. Yeah, and man, what he had to say about this time right now, just such a difficult one, one that I think, you know, as we all know, we're kind of saying one of the most difficult times that we've ever lived through. So uh, great to check in with him. 
And that wraps up the first hour of the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. I'm Jason Kelly. And I'm Carol Masser. More ahead in our next hour. Including a continuation of that conversation we had with Arthur Blank, we pivot a bit to go deeper into the issues of racial injustice across the country. We check in with the U.S. Chief Operating Officer for Edelman, a woman who also leads their Washington, D.C. office, talking about Lisa Ross. And then, Jason, on a lighter note, we've got a little B-school, a little beer, and a bunch of humor. That's all ahead. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly from Bloomberg Radio. Hi, I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. Plenty ahead for you in this hour of the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week. That's right, Jason. We've got a surprise from B-School students, the fight for racial justice with Edelman's U.S. COO and head of its D.C. operations, and then the joint venture that links up two family-owned beer dynasties. This was a fascinating conversation. Mm. So many families, (laughs) so much beer, plus... We probably should all be grounded without TV for at least a month. Author and political satirist P.J. O'Rourke, longtime fan, first-time caller. I'm talking about myself (laughs) here. He's got a new book, A Cry from the Far Middle. First, though, we caught up this week with Dr. Miriam Alavi. She is the dean of the Scheller College of Business at Georgia Tech. She's also a professor of information technology management. We talked with her about what getting back to school is like on her campus. Most of our classes that are uh, being in a hybrid mode, which means it's a combination of online and in-person classes, where in-person classes uh, are uh, really smaller uh, to be able to uh, keep everyone safe and be able to have uh, social distancing uh, in a classroom environment. And that was Miriam Malavi, Dean of the Scheller College of Business at Georgia Tech. And Jason, while we normally release an annual ranking of business schools around this time this year and in this environment, well, we just couldn't because of the disruptions caused by the pandemic. So instead, we asked a bunch of questions, and the results definitely surprised our team. We got the details from Caleb Solomon, our pal. He is senior editor over at Bloomberg News. He's responsible for the magazine's coverage of the world's best business schools and its well-respected annual rankings. We didn't think a ranking made sense this year. The pandemic overwhelmed everything. It overwhelmed schools in different ways at different times. So we focused on what the story was, which was this dramatic shift to online learning. And so we, instead of a a ranking, we surveyed MBA students to try to get some basic answers to really important questions that we all have and unfortunately still all have because, you know, so much of higher education is still either fully or partially online right now. So we wanted to know what works with online teaching, what doesn't, what should continue even after the pandemic, what needs to stop immediately. And, you know, we came up with some uh, surprising results. So tell us about that. And the online learning piece, especially, I think, is, of as you point out, is of huge interest to, to all of us, but especially for people who are paying tens of thousands, in some cases, a couple hundred thousand dollars to go to business school. Exactly. I mean, that, and we focused a lot on the tuition and costs. And so rather than just asking, you know, is it, was, it worth, was it worth the price? Do you want everything to stay online or to be fully in, in physical classes? We tried to be a little more subtle. And what we found is that over half of the students we surveyed would be willing to take a portion of their courses online in exchange for tuition cuts. And so the big book, the most... The biggest thing we came up with, a 20% cut in tuition would satisfy over half of the students we surveyed if, you know, the rest of those courses were online. That's significant. It is. It was really surprising. And, yeah. and there were more. You know, so the, the willingness to accept online 
courses, especially with a tuition cut, was, was the most profound thing we came across. And at the same time, don't get me wrong, there, there was no single response to this survey. A good chunk, 40-something percent, said, I don't want any online classes at all. It's horrible. Mm-hmm. It's, 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 it's cheating me to do it that way. It's interesting because I think about business schools, and that's from the programs I know about. I worked at Columbia for a long time, but we've also been visiting them, you know, with you uh, and doing a lot of remote coverage for TV and radio and talking to professors, students, uh, deans, you know, and really prominent alumni. But the whole idea is it's you've got people from all over the world together in classrooms working on projects. I mean, that's that collaborative effort, um, that back and forth face to face is such a big part of it, the experience. It is, and that came up a lot. That sort of, you know, what we call the networking opportunities. Uh, that you just lose a lot when you're not doing it face to face, whether it's fellow yeah. students or alumni or employers. The flip side of it is, you know, we're we're all struggling and dealing. Work. Many of us working at home. Probably some of us will continue to work at home regardless. So we are working in a digital space. We are working in teams uh, on Zoom, and so. Having a business school, you have to figure out how to do that well. That you know, worse things could happen for a career. Mm. And so, Caleb, going through all of this and, and knowing the intricacies of the education, knowing as many people as you do, and you're in constant contact with folks at all levels, right up to the to the deans. What was your takeaway? I mean, what is what has changed, and maybe more importantly, what is lasting for business schools as we work our way through this pandemic, in your estimation? I think elements of what everybody's going through will definitely stay with us. So, for instance, again, a surprise to us, recorded classes, which sounds a little bit like the dullest thing you could imagine to have to sit through, for certain people and for certain uses, they were really popular. Mm. You know, basic things like you, you were sick, you had a job interview, but even more importantly, a lot of the students told us they liked recorded classes to get away, get, get the sort of the basics, you know, stuff you had to know out of the way, and then you could actually use the classroom itself to have important discussions and, and, and conversations. Um, That's likewise, rich. That's rich, right? Think about that, right? It's like your yeah. basic stuff, you just you kind of go through a tutorial to some extent, right, online, and then you come to class and everybody's kind of armed for, you know, smarter and a higher level discussion. That's pretty cool. It, it is cool. And so, and then also think about some of the, you know, your familiarity, like some of the harder, you know, some of the more technically oriented courses, finance, accounting. Let's say it's an hour and a half of a class, but you need, you know, you need to understand the first 20 minutes to get to the next 20 to the next 20. If you're struggling with the first 20, you can watch it again and again until you get it. Likewise, if you already know that, you can breeze through it and right. the rest of the course and be done with it faster at your own pace. And that had, that had a lot of appeal, and it's hard to think, why wouldn't that stay? And that was Caleb Solomon, senior editor at Bloomberg News. He's responsible for the great coverage in the magazine, all about the world's best business schools. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Coming up, we dig into the fight for racial justice in America. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly from Bloomberg Radio. Well, Carol, common themes through just about every one of our daily Bloomberg Business Week shows, understandably, they're about these dual pandemics, the virus and the quest for racial justice. 
And on this, Jason, we caught up with Lisa Ross at the public relations giant Edelman, where she is U.S. Chief Operating Officer. She also leads Edelman's Washington, D.C. office. She's president there. She also held several roles in the Clinton administration in the Labor Department, and she was a member of the inaugural team of the White House Office of Women's Initiatives and Outreach. So a great voice to check in with. Media fuels racism. Mm -hmm. 62% of all of those polls said that in covering the demonstrations against racial injustice, the news media has focused on rioting at the expense of peaceful protest. So I think that's something that people have felt, um, something that's been alluded to, but um, this research indicates that that is actually true. Um, The second one, that um, there was, there's a little bit of a sense, which is problematic, that some people have to see it to believe it. So we did this research the first time in June, and uh, overwhelming numbers said that that, uh, Americans believe that systemic racism exists, and overwhelming numbers said that business and brands have a responsibility to take a stand and to do something. Now, we went back into the field, so that was June, we went back into the field in early August, did it, found a little bit of a dip, quite frankly, between um, the murder of George Floyd and early August. And then when Jacob Blake was shot, we went back into the field and it went up. And so interesting that, and particularly it went up in two categories, um, Republicans and uh, people 55 and older. And so after the shooting of Jacob Blake, there was definitely an increase in the number of people who support protests and the people who definitely seem to believe that, yes, uh, systemic racism does exist. But interesting that we saw a dip when we didn't see um, some of the incidences. Um, third, um, and this is the, this is the space where I live, super high expectation for business, but low marks on business response to date. Uh, so, you know, you saw when this first happened, everyone was making their statement. Everybody yeah. was... Um, releasing their data, Black Lives Matter, I stand against racism, so forth and so on. And it was all attributed to the CEO. So definitely a sense all summer long, appreciate the conversation, but what have you actually done? That is like what so, have you actually done, Lisa? I want to jump in, I and mean, we've we've been lucky enough to have Richard to Richard Edelman join us several times to talk about this barometer, uh, and as it's you know how it has been certainly through the pandemic. I, talk to me. You guys are at the nexus of talking to so many different CEOs. You have those high level, you know, conversations. I do wonder, you know, everyone's saying it's going to be different this time around, but I, you know, I'd be a really wealthy lady if I got a nickel for every time I heard that, you know, there are high (laughs) expectations, right? A business to do the right thing and not just talk about, okay, we're going to do, you know, a focus group and we're going to do this and we're going to do that, but rather really make some change to make sure that they have a diverse workforce, that they have diverse suppliers and their supply chain. I mean, these are the things that move the needle. So are you having those high-level conversations, and do you have those high hopes that things actually do change? Carol, you're, you're spot on in everything that you noted, that um, uh, saying something is one thing, doing something is dramatically different, and the respondents overwhelmingly agree. So, uh, yeah, my, I believe that things will change because the CEOs that we are talking to are intimately concerned and involved about these issues. But to be frank, for many of them, this is uncharted territory. Um, you know, when we first started advising it, many CEOs were like, oh, I want to say something, but uh, my house isn't in order. And I'm like, guess what? No one's house is in order. That's why we're having the problems that we are having. 
but you still have to speak out. But, you know, a lot of this for, for CEOs, a lot of this for us is um, these are lived experiences for many people. And for many CEOs who are overwhelmingly uh, white, male, uh, uh, mainstream, uh, Christian, uh, straight, uh, the lived experience that other people seem to have does not affect them. And so in many ways, they are trying to catch up culturally with what's happening in the rest of the world. Now, is the intent there? Absolutely. Is their heart in the right place? Absolutely. But um, many of them are catching up and they're learning about things, which I think is, is impeding some of the progress that we're making. What do you mean they're learning? I mean, where have they been? Under a rock the last, you know, 10 years? So I have to be careful in my response to this question, but yeah, right? Yeah. I mean, absolutely. It is, it, is in, it is increasingly frustrating to me when uh, people say, I didn't know, and I have to say, how didn't you know? Right. How, wh- why, why didn't you know, and how didn't you know? But um, we are focused on the future, and we are focused. But the reason they don't know is because, in many ways, it's not their lived experience. I had a, a yeah. CEO say to me who was truly, truly, Carol and Jason, like really trying to understand what he could do. And he was like, I just don't want, he said, what, what's missing? There's a gap. And I said, all of you are very comfortable, some of you more so than others, putting up your statement that says Black Lives Matter on your company website. But will you put a Black Lives Matter sign on your doorstep, right. on your front lawn? Great point. You know, so that's different. So you got to live that and you have to feel that and you have to speak it so that what you do at home is not different from what you do at work. And I think that's a gap that many of them are experiencing. And so, Lisa, we've only got, unfortunately, about a minute left. And we're going to catch up with you very soon in the future, I hope. What advice do you give them? What should they do? What should they read? What should they watch? What sort of conversations should they be having to take it to the next level? So I've got a, I've got a six-point playbook, and then I've got my own personal guidelines. One, uh, use your influence. You have it. Uh, two, advocate and educate. That's expected of you. Uh, three, listen to folks who know. Uh, those are advocacy groups and many people within your own organization. Four, uh, get your own house in order. Uh, five, know that there are consequences um, if you don't. Mm. Uh, so those are actually five playbook, right? So Lisa's personal guidelines are don't expect a thank you. As my mother said, you don't get credit for doing the right thing. Yeah. So don't expect a thank you. This right. is what you should have been, and you've got a chance to do now. Three, um, you can't boil the ocean in your actions, but you do have to do something. You can't eliminate 400 years of systemic racism in a summer. Um, and three, proceed with thick skin and a pure heart. For some, whatever you do is not going to be enough. Those for others, it's going to be too much. That's Lisa Ross at the public relations giant Edelman. She is U.S. Chief Operating Officer and also leads Edelman's Washington, D.C. office. She's president there. Well, obviously, Carol, this is a topic, as we mentioned, that we are talking about all the time and from all different angles with people from all walks of life. So great to catch up with someone who is clearly right in the middle of so many of these important discussions from both a public and a private sector perspective. Yeah. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Coming up, we're going to switch gears a bit. We've got a little bit of beer, a little bit of humor. Jason, I think it sounds just about right for the weekend. Absolutely. Fall is upon us. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly from Bloomberg Radio. 
All right, so Carol, this week we got to talk a little bit about beer. Yes, please. Yingling and Molson Coors, they got together forming a partnership. These are two family businesses, ultimately, and this is all about getting Yingling to more and more people. Yeah, we caught up and talked about the joint venture with Gavin Hattersley, President and CEO of Molson Coors, and Wendy Yingling. She's the Chief Administration Officer at DG Yingling & Son. She's also sixth generation, as you can tell, of the Yingling family. What clearly stood out for both of us, I think, was the fact that these are family-owned brands, a business for the first time in the case of the Yinglings being passed from father to daughters. We're a family company. We're family-owned and operated. You know, We're so fortunate to be in our sixth generation, and so the family component of this was very attractive to us, to be able to partner with other legacy brewing families like Coors and Molson. And we just feel like our cultures are very similar. There's a shared commitment to quality and tradition amongst the, the two, two breweries. So we just feel like it's a natural fit for Yingling. And so, Wendy, just one more question for you. you. You've mentioned several times the family aspect to it. I'm sort of fascinated because we don't talk to, candidly, a lot of family businesses, and certainly not a lot of family businesses that have been around for almost a couple centuries. What is it about this business that is so conducive, the beer business, to being a family business? Yeah, we're very lucky. So my great-great-great-grandfather started the business back wow. in 1829. And it's gone from generation to generation, passing from father to son. And, you know, my sisters and I are very fortunate. There's four girls that are part of the sixth generation, and it'll be the first time the business is transferring from father to daughters rather than father to son. And I don't know. There's something about the beer business. It, it definitely brings strong family ties, and we're, we're so happy to be a part of it. Well, and I do think about, you know, I know in the press release, it's, you know, three-storied brewing families, three, and they're, you know, collective 18 generations, you know, of families that, you know, have been brewing beer. Um, You know, Gavin, what is it about that background to that maybe, you know, differentiate yourself from some of the other folks that are out there on the market? Well, it's really three businesses that have still got families involved with them. So, you know, you've got, right. as, as Wendy said, the Yingling side, and then you've got the, the Coors family and the Molson family are, st- are still involved in, in our business. And, you know, such a commitment to, to quality and, 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 and great uh, people that um, I think, the, as I said, I think the chemistry just worked really well yeah. between us, and um, I'm really excited about it. Um, let me put it out to both of you, and, and Wendy, maybe you take it first. I am curious, you know, the impact of the virus. We've been talking with so many CEOs and leaders um, about the last six months, what it's meant for their teams, what it's meant for their business. Give me, give me your thoughts on how that has been and kind of where we are right now, especially when you look at uh, the marketplace and the outlook. Yeah, we've definitely seen an impact on where people are buying and consuming their beer. Our on-premise has been hit hard, and it's been tough with all the bars and restaurants shutting down, but you'll see more people shopping in the off-premise and stocking up and pantry loading. And as a result of it, we've seen staple brands, tried-and-true companies like Yingling, really resurge during this, and we've seen tremendous improvement in some of our peripheral brands like Light Lager and Black and Tan. So we've fared pretty well in all this. Um, um, you know, it's been tough on everybody across all industries. Uh, primarily for, for us, it's the on-premise bar business. Right. Gavin, I would imagine similar for you, but from a brand perspective, have you seen anything surprising or different in terms of what's been more or less popular than you might have anticipated? 
Yes, we've experienced the same thing as, as Wendy um, just referred to as, as well. We saw initial strong pantry loading in March. It was, it was a 4th of July weekend back in March, and we've actually experienced three or four 4th of July weekend um, load-ins uh, over summer. So we've seen strong demand. Um, we've also seen consumers go back to tried and trusted brands, and in our case, those would be, would be Miller Lite and Coors Light and, and Blue Moon. So we've seen a similar um, struggle on, in the, in the on-premise, but it's, it's shown up in the, in the off-premise uh, for us in those, in those three brands. I guess what surprised me a little bit is we haven't seen a trade down. Um, huh. you know, in recessions past, we've seen hmm. a trade down to, to, to cheaper beers, and we haven't seen that, actually. In, in fact, somewhat to the contrary, we've seen a trade up into, into above-premium products. What do you think that is? Well, I think the um, stimulus package certainly helped. It certainly put more money into into folks' pockets. I also think that you know, it's a, your your dollar goes a little further in the off-premise than than perhaps in the in the on-premise. So it's it's probably a combination of those two factors. Mm. And Wendy, any supply chain issues that you've run into owing to the the pandemic in terms of either workers not being able to work or supplies not getting to where they need to get to? No, we haven't had any issues, fortunately. We're very lucky. Our workforce is very loyal and committed, uh, but fortunately we have a good relationship with our vendors and we've been able to keep our products in supply. And that's Wendy Yingling, Chief Administrative Officer over at DG Yingling & Son. It goes back generations. And Gavin Hattersley, President and CEO of Molson Coors. He's not a Molson or a Coors, but that's also a family business. Yeah, absolutely. A lot of heritage from those two. Still to come, the highlight, I think this is safe to say, the highlight of Jason's week. And the reason you're a journalist? Yeah, absolutely. PJR Work, he's coming up. This is Whooper. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly from Bloomberg Radio. So great way to wrap up our weekend. And I'm guessing many of you probably have read his columns or his many, many books. We're talking about author and political satirist P.J. O'Rourke joining us. He's got a new book out, Jason, and you are a super fan. Yeah, I'm going to say, just warning everybody here, uh, I got a little fanboy on this guy because I've been reading him for decades. It was really cool to just hear his take on the world. It's refreshing and candidly made me feel a little bit better about where we are as a country. Everybody is so angry, and anger is not the friend of the happy humorist. Um, So, you know, it's... It, it makes it really tough. Uh, I mean, it's not so much that I'm worried about um, uh, offending people. It's just that I'm, well, I'm, I'm, I'm worried about people being in any kind of mood to receive, receive any kind of lightening up um, about um, anything. <laughs> well, you know, that's such a good point, you know, PJ, because people, it's like, you know, I try to have conversations with people and it gets so heated and angry so quickly. I'm like, lighten up. We're discussing things and you're going to have maybe a different opinion. I'm going to have a different opinion. But let's let's discuss. It is. Uh, we've got the whole nation involved in that kind of fight that uh, those of us who have been married for a long time <laughs> cannot help but be familiar with this kind of fight. It starts out over, like, whether we should slip cover the couch. <laughs> And by the end of the fight, it's like, uh, and not only that, I remember when you flirted with that girl at that party in 1995, and you leave wet towels all over the bed, and your socks are all over the floor, and it's it's the kitchen sink, you know, we're throwing the kitchen sink at each other, and uh, we, 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 we better stop that. 
You know, the other thing for it is I don't get what the cause is, really. I mean, I in a way I do. I, it, it, Trump is, shall we say that he's a somewhat divisive president? I mm. think we could probably go that far. Uh, I get that. And then the pandemic has got everybody cooped inside, like seething with grievances, you know, and like letting their minds run on all the things that make them angry and stuff. But, you know, really, we're not facing a huge external threat at right. the moment where, you know, wars, overseas war are winding down. China's a worry, you know, but it's, uh, you know, it, it's just a worry. It's not, you know, it's not an imminent threat, I don't think. Uh, the economy was perking along pretty well and shows some signs of being able to re-perk. Um, uh, and you know, why are we so mad? So you take this on directly in your book and the, the essay that I love the most is whose bright idea was it to make sure that every idiot in the world was in touch with every other idiot. Social media, (laughs) I have to think is responsible for part of this, right? Social media has got lots and lots to blame. You know, I grew up, I'm, I'm, I'm old, you know, I'm 72 years old. So I grew up in like, you know, the fifties and sixties. And there was this wonderful idea that we would all get along better if we could just communicate. Mm. You know, if the generation gap could be closed with communication, if we could just talk to the Soviet Union, you know, if the, if, if, if races, with, if people from different races would just communicate with each other. And there was this big star, Malcolm McLuhan, you know, who had yep. this whole idea that, that, that television would create a global village. And we all thought, oh, this is just genius. This is just wonderful. And it gives me an excuse to sit around and watch TV. <laughs> and what thing is, is that we, were, we knew about Marshall McLuhan, but we hadn't read him. Right. Because if you read him, Marshall McLuhan, he was, I, I found a radio interview with him, actually, where a Canadian radio broadcaster says, I thought you said we were going to have a, a global village, and there's all this like war and hatred and rioting and stuff. You said we were going to have a global village, and McLuhan goes, I said we were going to have a global village. I didn't say the villagers would like each other. Right, right. <laughs> um, there's one essay. It's the inaugural address I'd like to hear the president, whoever it may be, deliver. Um, PJ, you do write a lot about politics. And, you know, there's so much in here that I love, but there's also one that I'm just trying to find. I had the line highlighted. Just this reminder of, of the government is more than just one individual, even though that's who we elect. And, you know, just tell us about kind of how you look at politics right now and what you kind of want to get across to Americans with your writings. Well, one of the things about the presidency is we've just allowed it to grow into some sort of cult. You know, it's almost like a Xi Jinping or a, or a or Vladimir Putin, where the president of the United States becomes like the sort of sacred king who's responsible for our well-being of our entire country, and uh, the, uh, and of course, if anything goes wrong, we 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 take that sacred king and we sacrifice him. Um, uh, actually, what well, we 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 don't kill him the way that primitive societies do. We just give him a giant book contract for a really, really boring book. <laughs> but uh, you know what I mean. And uh, the thing is that that's not how it works. If you read the Constitution, it's you get, you get about five pages into the Constitution before the president is even mentioned. Right. You know, you know he's a chief executive uh, he's not the chairman of the board. We're the chairman of the board. He's he's just the chief executive, and he's supposed to make the laws that we make in Congress. 
He's supposed to make sure that they're put into force. Yes, he's the commander of chief during wartime, but it's Congress that has the power to uh, to declare war, not the president. They should remember that every now and then uh, when they're they're when they're griping at the president for the wars that he's had. They've got the power, and uh, yeah, this was never meant to be some sort of. Of, of of weird kingship or or, or, or cult of, of personality for good or for ill. You know, we're not supposed to worship the president and we're certainly and we're not supposed to revile him. Um he's 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 just he's got a corner office, but you know, he depends on us for for, for to right. do all the work. And yet PJ, as I think about it, and and I am conscious of the fact that I and Carol make our living in the, in the media, and you make your living, you know, in and around the media. And I listen to you on Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, and I love those appearances. But you know, from McLuhan to Facebook to Twitter, like the media, broadly defined, is is certainly if not complicit uh, in all of that, or is complicit maybe, and, and, and maybe responsible for the way that this has been a, a little bit warped. We probably should all be grounded without TV for at least a month. <laughs> right. And take away our phones, I mean, right? I'll take my share of the blame here. I'm not, I'm not, not picking on you guys. But, the, um, um, yeah, we, we get obsessed with trivia, and then, you know, of course, there's always been that thing in the media where if it bleeds, it leads. Natu- naturally, we love a disaster. But then there's also this thing that has emerged more recently. If it sleaze, it leads. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, I, I, I don't think that uh, uh, many members of the media could, could, would, could say of the media as a whole. I mean, I think we each try and do our own job as well as we can. But overall, the media gets is easily distracted. It's getting sort of Facebook brain, you know, right? Where it's right. so easily defacted, twi- or Twitter brain, worse than Facebook brain. Facebook at least has some pictures of grandchildren. Uh, <laughs> so, so it's the la- it's the last thing anybody said. It's the last thing anybody heard. And uh, uh, the, the the you know in depth reporting is 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 hard to find, and impartial reporting is hard to find. Um, journalists, I, I'm old enough to remember when journalists like really looked down on partisan politics, and the idea of a journalist having partisan politics would be really like the I, I, I don't even know what to, to compare it to exactly. It would be like uh, 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 a journalist having like uh, a favorite European soccer team. Right. <laughs> <laughs> we have a few of those actually. Yeah, yeah we have a few, a few of those in our shop. <laughs> Well, listen, one thing I want to ask you, and you, you know, you end up this new book um, that's out with a bunch of your essays, and you end with, and I'm an optimist, and I know Jason is too, what I like about you, USA, and you say three things I like about America are fast food, suburban sprawl, and traffic jams. Um, we haven't seen a lot of traffic jams because of the virus. Um, suburban sprawl, though, we're thinking we might see a little bit more of because of the virus as people Everybody's move out Everybody's moving out in the country. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Even if the country's only as far as Levittown, you know, they're doing the best yeah. to get out of town. <laughs> 
Well, you know, and it's interesting, and you write, you do a, a pre-preface, if you will, in your yeah. book, because you say you wrote these essays in 2019, and then 2020 happened. As we know, it's been a year of just one, you know, expletive and one after another, unbelievable yeah. story after another, and a lot of heartache, uh, if you will. And I think we're all wondering what happens on the other side. You know, what are your thoughts about this year? Well, it, it, it writes itself, you know. I mean, mm. people say, oh, America's so divided. America's never been this divided. And I go, oh, 1861? Yeah. I'm not sure America's ever been so divided. Having survived the 60s and the early 70s, uh, America's a ship that's got a lot of keel to it. And that's author and political satirist P.J. O'Rourke joining us from New Hampshire. His book, A Cry from the Far Middle, Dispatches from a Divided Land. I got to say, I felt better after I, talking to him. Yeah, I do feel a little bit better, too. And I love how he asked, you know, why are we all so angry right now? And then, of course, how could I forget his remark? America is a ship that has a lot of keel to it. I love, love, love that. That's going on our T-shirt list. And that wraps up the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm Jason Kelly. And I'm Carol Master. Be sure to check out our daily radio show Monday through Friday starting at 2 p.m. Wall Street time. And if you miss any of our big interviews, check out our podcast feed. You should be subscribing. Hear all of our daily conversations and this show. Yeah, and be sure to check out our extra podcast this week. We check in with Paul Rayther. He's a KKR senior advisory partner, and he joined us to talk about opportunities for diverse students who otherwise probably wouldn't get them. And check out the latest edition of Bloomberg Business Week. It's on newsstands now. We'll be back next week at the same time. This is Bloomberg.